The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. In 1904, the first president of the American Psychological Association, G. Stanley Hall, identified a new phase in human development known as adolescence. This stage of life was made possible, he said, by social changes at the turn of the 20th century. With education available to everyone and child labor laws delaying their entry into adulthood, teenagers suddenly encountered an amorphous period during which they weren't quite children even as they weren't recognized as fully responsible members of society. In many cultures, including indigenous ones, adolescence isn't recognized as a distinct phase of life. There's childhood and adulthood, and particular rituals are designed to mark the transition. The rituals may only take a few days, but they demarcate a clear shift from one role in society to another. Over the last 50 years in America, adolescence has stretched and now sometimes lasts for over a decade as young people engage in higher education and other pursuits that delay the moment when they assume full adult responsibilities, whether that's living on their own, earning their own income, or caring for a family. Though we have ceremonies like bat mitzvahs, confirmations, and high school graduations, these rites are often not carried out with a particular psychological purpose in mind. In the absence of supportive rites of passage, adolescents often end up creating their own, more precarious ones. Gang violence, teen pregnancy, hazing rituals, experimentation with drugs and alcohol can all serve this purpose, a search for connection and meaning. Enter the field of youth development. In its broadest sense, the field targets the stages that all human beings go through to acquire the attitudes, values, and skills they'll need to become successful adults. The field emerged in the middle of the 20th century, partly in response to challenging behaviors being observed in adolescence. Youth development is founded on the belief that young people are best able to move through stages of life when they're supported across all sectors of the community, by individual mentors, family, schools, youth agencies, and faith organizations. Instead of focusing on reducing particular risks or preventing bad outcomes, the youth development model focuses on activities that nurture developmental assets. Its ultimate goal is to help youth become successful adults, not merely problem-free ones. To take just one example, in the criminal justice system, youth development pushed against locking away juvenile offenders and instead urged the system to proactively address their unmet needs through rehabilitation and education. Our guest today is Karen Pittman, a partner of Knowledge to Power Catalysts and co-founder and former CEO of the Forum for Youth Investment. She's one of the leading thinkers in the field of youth development, and her career has been dedicated to finding scalable solutions that can help close opportunity gaps for young people. 
Our conversation explores what the American education system, from birth through post-secondary, can learn from the youth development approach. Listeners up to this point know that the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview gave birth to an industrial model of education, which became the template for America's public education system, and that this model of education upended traditional approaches to learning and joining the adult world. In most indigenous societies, the content of children's education was life, whatever they needed to know to take care of themselves, contribute to the family, and play a role in their community. In the process, young people would naturally learn to form relationships, develop social, emotional, and cognitive skills, and to form a sense of identity and belonging. The industrial model of education, which is still the core of most educational programs today, does exactly the opposite. Schools take young people out of society, out of their homes, and out of their communities. Learning is detached from relationship, detached from community context, and presented as an abstract set of skills and achievements. As Karen explains, the concept of youth development was adopted quickly into America's social service and juvenile justice systems in the 1980s and 90s, when it became clear that punishing young people didn't prevent delinquency. However, youth development didn't really catch on in education. Americans are attached to the idea of schools as the site of academic learning. While the whole child movement has led many schools to adopt social-emotional, mindfulness, and restorative justice practices, these interventions are bolted on to an education system that's still designed from the bottom up, primarily for knowledge acquisition. Recognizing that young people need more, families and educators turn to extracurricular activities, camps, and out-of-school time programs to provide what schools don't or can't. The problem is, this results in gaps of opportunity, with some young people being given access to the range of relationships and experiences they need to thrive, while others go without. It also reinforces the idea that schools can somehow separate out academic development and learning from other areas of human growth. There are exceptions, of course, and you've heard about some of them in past episodes. Big Picture Learning, Montessori, Urban Assembly, EL Education, and the Schools in the What Made Them Prepared project. These are all programs with a human-centered orientation to education. They ground their work in an understanding of human development and focus on creating contexts that enable all young people to learn. This means, in part, dissolving the artificial walls we've placed between formal education and life, giving children and adolescents access to the full range of supports they need to thrive. For Karen, these programs can be models for our education system as a whole, centering healthy human development more than academic learning, starting from birth and extending into post-secondary programs like college. Having observed for 50 years how hard it is for schools and youth development programs to work together in meaningful ways, Karen argues for a strong, shared sense of purpose among the players in those systems. This means investing in formal infrastructure supports that allow players within these systems to collaborate as partners in providing young people with what they need to thrive. At this moment, when the disruptions of COVID have enabled new partnerships between formal and non-formal educators, Karen reminds us how we can keep this momentum, how we can keep blurring that old artificial line that separates young people's experience of education from the life of their family, their community, and the larger world. Thanks so much for joining us, Karen. We're really happy to have you with us. It's great to be here, Olka. 
So I'd like to start out just with you as a person, um, since I think we bring so much of our own stories and journeys into our work. So tell us a little bit about kind of your journey to this moment. I know you've been in the field for a long time, um, but how did you get to doing the work that you're doing today? Well, it's a that's an interesting question. It's a long story, but I'll give you the origin of it. Basically, I got started in this work because I was lucky enough to go to the D.C. public schools when they were in the their sort of renaissance period, and they were doing all these innovative things, basically trying to combat white flight. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that I was moved from my home elementary to an elementary one, one farther away that had me basically in a looped class with the same kids for the same teacher for three years. And then I went off, got on a bus and went to the other side of town, went to a junior high school that was tracked because they were still tracking, but had block classes, had labs, had team teaching, had all kinds of things that we do now that we think of as sort of innovative education now. And then went to high school, again, on the other side of town. Um, They were just picking up empty buildings and using them for this experiment. Went to high school at a place at a time when everything was just so incredibly engaged and all students were really engaged. Again, these were this was not magnet schools. These were schools with kids of all abilities brought in from across the city to just do this grand experiment. Unfortunately, the experiment didn't last, um, or at least by the time I my kids were ready to go to school, it wasn't there anymore, but I got it. And that meant that I went off to college basically well-prepared and in fact much better prepared than you would have thought of by my demographics. So you read the, the profile, I'm clearly a bright kid, but I'm a bright kid coming from a poor single parent family in the DC public schools. And people would say, well, she's bright, but we're gonna have to do a lot of remedial work. I didn't have to have that remedial work on the academic side. And also because I'd had this very rich experience with people of all different backgrounds, I didn't have the sort of shock factor of going to Oberlin College in the middle of a mostly white town with mostly white kids. So I went off prepared socially and academically and was surprised that people were surprised that I was prepared. That was just an interesting feeling because I didn't feel like in going through school that, that, that anything different had happened to me. This, this experiment was so natural, at least for the kids in this school, that everybody just assumed everybody was engaged, everybody was working, everybody wanted to succeed up to their potential. All the teachers were engaged. They were diverse teachers. It was a perfect experiment. At that point, I had this sense that people expected that I had somehow beaten the odds, that I was the exception that had been pulled out and gotten prepared. But I didn't feel that way. I felt like somehow I had managed to go into an environment in which people had just somehow magically changed the odds for the kids in that entire building and for that in that cohort of kids going through school. So that was with me, and I was pondering that when I needed a summer job. And David Weikert, who started the High School Educational Research Foundation and um, was the leader of the Perry Preschool Project, which gave us Head Start um, and convinced us that investments in early quality, early childhood education really matter. He also cared about active learning all the way up through adolescence. He couldn't get the, the Ypsilanti Public Schools to do his experiment up into the school years. So he and his wife set up an educational camp for teens, and he was looking for people who liked, thought they wanted to be teachers. I thought I wanted to be a math teacher. So for my summers in college, I was a camp counselor at the High Scope Educational Camp for Teenagers. I had never gone to camp. I never spent overnight anywhere. 
But there I was as a camp counselor. And it was an amazing experience because of the absolute intentionality of taking mostly 18 to 22-year-olds and getting them to figure out how to create supportive learning environments for 12 to 18-year-olds. Ungraded, about 80 kids would come every summer for eight weeks. And our job was to get them excited about learning. They were learning traditional things. We had, I was the math person and the science person and the music person. So they were learning traditional things, but in untraditional ways. And they always had choices about what they were learning. They just had to pick something and work at it. And at the end of the summer, you just saw the transformation of these kids inconsistently. So for three years, I did it. For three years, I saw the transformation. I saw the integration of community. And I realized that's really what youth development is about. And that's clearly what learning is about. And David later did a study to show that just like with Perry Preschool, when you introduce that kind of an intensive learning experience for young people, in this case, eight weeks in the summer, you change their trajectory, their life trajectory. So that's what got me started in this work. Um, I came out of three years of doing that, convinced that what I had seen, what I'd experienced in the DC public schools and what I had actually been able to generate in the high school camp, every kid should get. And I just had to figure out how to do it. The practice was there. We understood the practice, but the policy wasn't. So I've just sort of been in this space between articulating practice, trying to scale practice, and inform policy. Hmm. That's fascinating. So there's a lot of directions I'd love to go in our conversation, um, but I'd love to start with adolescence. I mean, your focus and interest has been on adolescent development. Um, in the last, I feel like five to seven years, we've seen a, res- a, a sort of interest in adolescence. What are some findings that you would highlight for folks who are listening who may not be as familiar with adolescence? And why are these particularly important? It's really important to understand from a developmental perspective that adolescents, adolescents as a group, are are not the people that are often described in the media. They are not the they care about their parents. They care about their future. Um, They are risk takers, but they're actually wired to be risk takers in a positive way. And we see that risk taking because we try to clamp down on it. We see that risk taking as all negative. Risk-taking is actually how the species keeps itself going. The old people are going to do it the way they do it, but the country's changing, the environment's changing. We need the innovators to go out and find out new things. They need to be willing to fail because they're going to fail, but eventually they find the new path. That really is how species survive and transform, and that's the critical role that adolescents play. When we misinterpret that and think that that's rebellion, then we clamp down on it and then they react because the adolescents are also really hypersensitive to respect. At that point in their lives, when they're separating from their families, not like they don't care about them, but they're building their own identity versus a group identity that is an individual identity, they're very sensitive to respect. Um, and we don't give them the respect that they deserve. We literally treat them like children. And there is a very distinct difference between children and youth. And it it's comes from both the developmental perspective of obviously we hit puberty, but it's more than just hitting puberty. It's really hitting those developmental phases where you're shifting to build not just competencies, but build a sense of identity and build a sense of agency. And we just undervalue those things in this country in particular. You use the term youth development, and you just talked about this period of life as youth. 
Now, people may be familiar with youth development programs like summer camps or boys and girls clubs, but I've also heard you use the word community education. I'm wondering why, what the distinction is, and could you give us a sense of what this encompasses? Because then I'd like to go into our education system a bit more and think about why it hasn't been able to work inside of the formal system. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm a big proponent of the term youth development. In, In the United States, we've picked it up and called it positive youth development. But the term youth development really has great currency and specific meaning in the Commonwealth countries, in England and and Ireland and Great and uh, Africa, um, Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, um, and the term is not linked to a system. The term is really linked to development. Youth development is an approach. So if you look on youth.gov, you'll see a definition of positive youth development that the interagency working group on youth programs has put together, and I'll actually read it to you. PYD is an intentional pro-social approach that engages youth within their communities, schools, organizations, peer groups, and families in a manner that is productive and constructive, that recognizes, utilizes, and enhances young people's strengths, promotes positive outcomes for young people by providing opportunities, fostering positive relationships, and furnishing the support needed to build on their leadership strengths. So it's a very asset-based approach to empowering young people, and they don't name, they essentially don't name a system. And that's really what the youth development approach should be a universal approach that's used in every system. Um, we brought that back from the United, from the UK and started to move it as an alternative way to think about prevention. And we got mm-hmm. great traction in moving it to think about prevention. We didn't get traction in education. We got traction in getting people that, who, who thought that their job was to fix kids, to understand this asset-based approach of you have to develop, not just fix but we didn't get the same traction in education. So because of that, what's happened in the United States in particular is youth development has become synonymous with after school or out of school. We have, and you talk about education and youth development and, and they're talked about as two systems, but youth development is an approach which then if we say there are two systems, then it's like, well, there's the education system and there's a the youth development system. So I've started talking about community educators as a way to get to the people who are supporting learning and development in communities who could be teachers but aren't supporting it primarily through the development of academic competence and giving them a term that's familiar to schools so that they don't just lump it all together and say, oh, those are the people that do youth development over there. And in their minds, they think after school. And I just want to kind of underscore that thread that paying attention to human development and making that a fundamental and foundational part of how we do education would be the ideal. And in some ways, you know, even the term whole child, which has been around for a while, still doesn't get to development. It kind of thinks about the pieces of a child, um, but isn't really talking about um, about what young people need at different stages. And you have a new book um, that came out called Whole Child Development, Learning and Thriving. And in it, you and your co-authors suggest that we haven't gotten it quite right. Um, so what would you say it would mean to build a system that really attended to the whole child with a developmental lens, um, and especially when it comes to adolescence? To, to have a system that really focuses on the whole child and focuses on development requires us to actually understand how young people grow up. 
Now, people grow up, basically development is sparked by experiences and relationships. And those experiences and relationships can be anywhere. So we're talking about young people needing a healthy mix of people, places, and possibilities where learning and development can happen. We can't completely predict where those can happen, but we can set them up and establish places for them to happen in the sense of, in the spirit of equity. So we don't leave it all up to chance. We don't leave it all up to where you live, etc. However, in setting up school, whether we intended to or not, there are differences of opinion there, we basically prioritized a specific kind of learning, academic learning, but we also prioritized a specific kind of learning called formal learning. Formal instruction, I'm going to teach you, not I'm going to set up experiences and let you play with them, or I'm going to just give you the freedom to pick, pick, pick what you want to do and delve, delve into it deeply yourself. So flexible learning, free choice learning happen in schools, but they don't get elevated to the same way that formal instruction does. And of course, you don't get credit for them in the same way that you do with formal instruction. So even though we're getting a deeper understanding of why we need to invest in broader learning and development, even the language used in schools is all additive. We started with social-emotional learning. When that, when that term came out, because I was there when it came out, we said, why don't we just talk about social-emotional competence? That's what we, the end goal, keep it connected to the kids, not the instruction. And it was intentionally said, the, the word learning was selected intentionally because they wanted to signal that this needed to come in formally as a curriculum. That's how you get things into school. You bring them in through the curriculum door. Well, once, once we did that, then we had the challenge of saying, well, it's not social emotional competing with academics. It has to all be together. So we went from SEL to SEED, social emotional and academic development. We keep making acronyms to add things on to what we, to the problem that we have, which is we centered too narrowly a definition of learning, which doesn't allow us to, to, to identify and support all the competencies that young people build naturally. And it doesn't let us identify and support all the ways that young people learn, even in the school building, much less out in their communities. Karen, I've seen, a, I've seen you share a visual um, that shows four different quadrants of activities and communities that engage young people. Could you describe that for us? And we'll make sure to link it in the show notes. Absolutely. The, there are so many systems that we think about when we think about what it takes to support kids that we get lost in the language of systems. We've got child welfare, juvenile justice, social services, housing, education, higher ed. We can name all these systems. But what we need to do is to really understand if we're going to get to this idea of how we support people in different roles in these systems, we need to put it into a simpler format. So what we've done is to basically say, make a, make a two by two matrix and say, the school system, which is the primary one we think about, is there because it is completely focused on young people and their learning and development, and it is mandatory. Young people are required to go. Families are required to put their kids in school, at least K-12. Adjacent to the mandatory system uh, that we call K-12 education is the community education system much more decentralized. You've got libraries, museums, parks, urban leagues, boys and girls clubs, all these other places where learning and development happen, 
but it happens in a voluntary way. And so the distinction between this very decentralized or, or modular community system or ecosystem where lots of different actors are supporting learning in different ways, they have connections, but they're not as integrated as school. And so you've got two very different systems that are both committed to learning and development. Below them, if you go to the bottom two quadrants, we've got the systems that are public systems supporting basic needs, health, housing, social services, transportation, finance, um, welfare. Those are systems that families don't use the public versions of those systems unless they need to. If I don't need support with housing, I don't need support with transportation, I won't use those public systems. But if I need it, I will. But that still is voluntary. It's a different kind of voluntary, but it's voluntary. And then the fourth quadrant, directly underneath of education, is the quadrant that people don't go to voluntarily. People don't put their kids in foster care. They don't connect to the juvenile justice system or the police system unless they have to. So if you take this idea of learning, a commitment to learning and development as one axis, and a commitment and, and mandatory versus voluntary as the other axis, it's, a, it's an easier way to see how families and young people connect to an array of systems and organizations. The thing that we need to understand is the entry point, the most natural entry point into learning and development is really the, the community education quadrant because that's where you have the best examples of how we get young people excited and engaged in learning because they have and their families have choices about how to do it, where to do it, when to do it, what to do. That doesn't, but that in itself doesn't get you to equity because we know that those choices are uneven. What we need to do is connect that community system, which is highly inequitable, depending on where you live, how much money you have, et cetera, and how much time you have, connect that to the mandatory system. In doing that, what we do is to, is to get clearer about the difference between mandatory and mandate. We need to support the public education mandate, but we need to broaden it across both of those quadrants so that the mandate leads us to methods of getting young people ready for college, for work, for life, that blend both of those quadrants together. So I think this difference between mandatory and mandate is one that we need to think about so that we decrease the monopoly that K-12 public education has, that, that schools have. We want to broaden the definition of public education, but broaden it in a way that supports learning and development in multiple places. I believe a lot of your work is influenced by ecological systems theory, um, which is a, which is a long a long phrase. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about that and why it's particularly important to understanding youth development and youth develop, development work. Yes. Yeah, so, um, being old, a lot of the the things that I turn back to are things from the 50s and 60s and 70s um, in terms of just theory. Um, Maslow's theory is clearly there, the needs hierarchy that we have to support, getting young people up to a, a sense of agency and actualization, but also this Bronfman Better's ecological model, which basically says young people have a, are in a series, a nested series of systems that, that influence them. Their most proximate system is called their microsystem. That's where the people and the places and the possibilities that they know exist and interconnect. And you can, if you've ever seen the graphic, you can see little icons that represent the various places where these people 
can create possibilities for kids. Then we all know the macro system. That's the school system and the school board and the, the juvenile justice center and the places that are systems that are operating that have an impact on those people and places that the kid interacts with. In between those two things, though, is something called the meso system, and it doesn't get, it doesn't have much detail in it in Bronfen Better's. In fact, it doesn't have any detail in Bronfen Better's graphic. There are no little icons in that space. The description is the meso system is where the people who are connecting with kids in their microsystem can connect with each other, hmm. and that's the place where, if you think about it. We have the most opportunity to really create ecosystems intentionally, because in a in a small homogeneous community, those people connect naturally. Your Boy Scout leader is all goes to your church and is also your social studies teacher. That's just natural in a homogeneous community in which people know each other. That eco that meso system connects naturally, and people are going to share information about kids. And, and teens in a holistic way. So the barriers aren't there. The more we get into large communities, the more we get into diverse communities or segregated communities, the more the people who are teaching our informal roles are not living and looking like the people that they are working with, the more those people are going to stay inside the system walls and say, well, my job is to teach X or my job is to do Y. That's what I'm accountable for. And then Doing anything to connect with adults doing something else, even in the building, feels like an exception to their job. And we always have people that want to do that, but they're all doing it in a sense of doing it as an extra, not as an expectation. So the teacher that goes the extra mile to find the coach and see how the kid's doing in in sports because he's not doing well in academics, or that goes in the summer and finds out where he's going in the summer, all those are great things, and we have those anecdotes but we don't have a system that supports that. The challenge is how do you get from where schools are to a vision of a completely decentralized system where the money isn't the money isn't connected to the school, the transportation isn't connected to the school, the credentialing isn't connected to the school, it's all connected to the community in ways that make sense. That's just a huge lift. But we have to think about how to do it. And that's what we're working on now. How do we really get in there and help people understand how we can get from where we are to where we want to be? And the shorthand answer that we're bringing is we need to have them look at the at this community system as a system that has has challenges. It has not been able to scale fully, but it has been able to innovate in ways that the integrated school system hasn't done. So rather than schools saying, well, we have to get there, but it's too hard and we have to make it all up ourselves, they can sit down with this alternative system, this community education system or community learning and development system and say, how did you do it? And then find the compromises in there. Karen, when you talk about an entirely decentralized system, I feel like people go immediately to older students being able to go out into the world and do their own thing. It doesn't work so well for younger children. So can what you're describing happen inside of a formal public education system that would look different, obviously, and have different policies and systems than the one that we have now? Or do you really have to decentralize it? And because if it's the latter, I want to ask, 
about some equity concerns um, that I think we have, which is that not all families and communities have the same ability to access completely decentralized systems. It's a really important question, and it, it it's important to get the language right. So the, the idea of decentralizing a system doesn't mean the same as dismantling the system. We need a system. We just need to unbundle the assets that the system has and unbundle the responsibilities for creating shared ownership into a more modular system. The school systems that we have right now are highly integrated. All the pieces fit together. And if you if you want to opt out of one piece, you end up opting out of all the pieces. And that's true whether you're talking about uh, a kindergartner or someone on, on their way to college. If I don't like some piece of it, and I step out of the public school system as currently defined, I lose access to transportation, I lose access to, to resources, to lunch, to other things that are going on in that building, simply because I want a different piece for the learning aspect. So unbundling may be a better word, but I think it's important to say that we're unbundling because we have such a firm commitment to public education as a pillar of our democracy, and that that commitment is somehow being threatened, not because parents don't want places and people whose job it is to support their children's learning, but because the system is so inflexible in how it does it that the word choice has become weaponized in unproductive ways. It's interesting, right, that the, that the scale at which some of these things need to happen is a much more human scale. And so many of our cities and places and communities have kind of gotten bigger, I think, than human human beings and human societies um, are equipped to manage. Um, I'm curious, can you talk to us about your thoughts on the infrastructure that's needed? Like, what would we need to invest in if we wanted to build out and strengthen the mesosystem um, for, this, for this ecosystem of learning? Yeah. It's a very different way of thinking about it, um, but we would need to invest at all levels. So let's go down to the people level, the people working directly with kids. They all have names. And first of all, we would have to acknowledge and name the number of roles that are out there, the people working with, with kids, and acknowledge that they are in places, libraries, schools, youth organizations, churches, et cetera, that because of, that, because of how that system shapes that place, they, they are able to offer different possibilities, both, both different possibilities for learning, but also different possibilities for relationship building. They're just different. We need to celebrate that difference. So the first thing that we have to do is to acknowledge that those roles exist and that the people in those roles right now are not supported and equipped to go outside of their role to talk to kids, to, to talk to kids beyond what they're doing with that child. Um, so the things that happen naturally in your small town, or I can run into you and say, somebody says, oh, you know, Johnny was sick the other day. Johnny wasn't sick. Johnny just didn't go to school, but Johnny went to football. For, oh, let's find out what's going on. That's stuff that naturally happens. We can make it happen, but we have to build a system to make it happen or the burden falls on the individual people to do it. And even if they're willing, and a lot of them are willing, this is not chastising anybody in those roles, we have to be basically build the supports. So what's the support that, that those people who are interested in doing that, what support do they need? They need somebody just one tiny level up whose job it is not to work directly with a small group of kids, but to really understand and watch 
the dynamics for all of them. And to when that individual teacher or librarian or coach comes in and says, I would like to know what's going on with Johnny, they can find out. They've got their one level up and they can do that. They're still going to do that inside of a system. So the person in the school system, let's say you have uh, you have a wraparound services coordinator, you have a communities and schools in your school, you've got somebody who's watching and mm-hmm. saying, all right, we're going to find out what's going on with these kids outside of the classroom, and we're going to know that so that we can support them. Or you have student success coaches in your school who are helping to do that work. You have to have jobs in that are these interstitial jobs have to be named and funded. Those people in turn need supports. Now you come up one more level and the people in the building who are doing that coordination have to be connected to other people in the other buildings and the other systems because those that kid leaves that building and goes someplace else. So you can see how it builds. And we tend to go, we, we tend to not build all the steps in the system. So some communities built children's cabinets and that's great or collective impact in initiatives. And that was great, you've got this high level integration but it didn't trickle down to get the programs and systems working together or trickle down to get the services in the buildings that let people feel comfortable doing what they needed. Now, again, every time we have an example of that, it works well. That's really interesting. And I, I so often the military becomes a very good illustration of things like this. So when we think about the different units and levels in the army, you have small ones that are then connected to each other, but connected a level up. And then those yes. levels are connected so that it becomes like a pyramid. And that is part of how they are so efficient and sort of, well, they're not perfect, but in general, sort of more efficient than many other large systems. Um, so that's a really great visual to use. It does seem as though it's not only enough to organize people, but there is this shift in the way people would approach their work. So in other words, a lot of people think about tutoring as, oh, I'm going to go to the school for 45 minutes and I'm going to read. And yes, I get to know the child and I might ask about their mom, but then I go home as opposed to really seeing it as their role to be part of this larger ecosystem where you have an active role and an active responsibility. And that the lack of that mindset shift feels like part of what's been so challenging in education over the last 20, 30 years. What else needs to be invested in besides, so you talked about the work of actually creating the infrastructure, but then what has to happen? What conversations do we have to be having that help people in that system then enter and do their work with the right mindset? That's a great question. And and it's also the word that you use, conversations, is a critical word. That's what we have to have. More and more I'm on Zoom calls where the kickoff is a question about where did you have your most powerful learning experience? Or my, the last call I was on, the question was, what's the first thing you really tried to learn by yourself? And people had fascinating answers. Those are conversation starters in a way that is not about a system. It's, it's tapping into you understanding really the essence of what learning is. And then you can get people to say, well, why did that happen? And why is it that so few of you mentioned school when you mentioned these powerful experiences? School does not come up the majority of the time. Everybody has the exceptional teacher or whatever, but they're naming something that was more personalized. And so that's where the, the SOLD Alliance, the Science of Learning and Development Alliance, which, which we're a part of, um, has come up with this blue wheel. Uh, the developmental 
They call them developmental design principles. I like to call them the non-negotiable. Let's just get to the point. These are five things that science says, if they're not there at some level, learning and engagement aren't going to happen. So no matter what your goal, they have to be there. It starts with developmental relationships. Then you get to a sense of safety and belonging. Then you get to rich instructional experiences, whatever kind you want. Then you get to support for the building these skills and competencies and mindsets that are so critical. And then you have integrated supports, integrated services that help the kid get whatever else they need. All that has to be there. Now, some organizations start with integrated services and you're a social service agency. Mentors clearly start with relationships. Schools start with academic learning. You know, everybody starts with a different piece. And that's fine. Those pie slices don't have to be even, but they all have to have some meat in them. And none of them can be empty. As soon as one of them is missing, it's there. So one of the things that's been happening in, in sort of youth development programs and after school and community programs, which are naturally inclined to use the youth development approach, which means that they're not thinking about just academics. They're thinking naturally about this broader set of skills and competencies, but, but they're doing it often more in a, a caught versus taught way. Hmm. We're going to create the experiences we're gonna, you're going to be interested in this, you're going to be engaged, we're going to be talking about stuff, and you're going to naturally build these skills and competencies. Hmm. And so obviously when, when COVID hit, I mean, it was happening already, but when COVID hit and kids were showing up, even to things that they were interested in, with less self-regulation, with more trauma, now you've got a surge of, well, now we have to teach these things. We can't just assume that if we create the experience that the engagement happens correctly, we now have to teach it. Um, so it's, it's important for us to understand and everybody understand whatever your job is, you have to pay a little bit of attention to all these things and, and understand that, yes, I'm here just to be a mentor, but if I'm just hugging the kid and taking them to ball games and I'm not talking to them about their academics, I can do all these things. So whether that becomes training, whether that becomes professionalization, it, it's, it is a mindset, the shift that has to happen first. And the, the example of that that I think is the most powerful is the work that Playworks has done over the years. So Playworks, as you know, went into, went into schools and said, we'll help you with one of your biggest problems, which is recess. Nobody wants to do recess. Kids go wild at recess. Your goal at recess is for kids not to hurt each other. And then they come back inside. So there's, there's no learning goal associated with recess. It's just a requirement. And they said, give us that time. Give us that 30, 45 minutes and let us show you you can do something else with it. And the training was minimal, but then they saw the results. So that is one of those things where they saw the results inside the school building. Hmm. And then because everybody saw it, you got more attention being paid to using recess as an opportunity for developmental experiences and leadership experiences rather than just kids blowing off steam. So we can do these mindset shifts with relatively simple, um, I mean, carefully crafted, I will say, um, experiences that, that help adults think differently. But this really has to start with getting people to think differently and talk differently about what they're doing and then getting them to see and hear differently the responses to what mm -hmm. they're doing. 
Karen, earlier you mentioned five main elements that all programs need to have if they're really supporting the needs that young people have. We've heard in past episodes about educational models like urban assembly schools, EL schools, big picture learning, Montessori. And what they have in common is that they are intentionally designed to be coherent in ways that they address the five elements that you name. And because they're coherent and integrated, it feels like they take the cognitive load off of individual adults to have to put the pieces together at every moment of every week of every month as they're working with young people. And so you can do what a lot of these programs do, which is hire for dispositions, not necessarily formal training or formal degrees. And then you can train the adults specifically in these models. As you're talking to funders, Do you think it's valuable to be investing in some of these existing models that have figured out these design principles in formal ways? It feels as though they can be templates for communities to take and use and adapt rather than having to build everything from scratch. Um, I don't think it has to be either or, but I'm curious about what you think about investing in codifying and then sharing out some of these existing models that we know work. It it has to be both and. It can't be that we just start from scratch. Um, we need the models. But I think it's really important, as you said, to pick models that have this at their core the same humanistic underpinnings that are so important. So if we if we spend more time really examining what those underpinnings are, what the theories are, what exactly did they do? What was their goal? And how did they get there in the least <laughs> difficult way? Because most of these people are navigating around things. They're all inside of public mm-hmm. schools. They're all using public funding. How did they pick their battles on what they worked on? EL Education, for example, just mm-hmm. said, you're gonna work, if you're going to work with you as a school, we're going to work with you with, for three to five years, and you've got to find a way to get all your staff on board with this. It's not just about the teachers. So if you're not going to find a way to get all the staff in the building into these conversations and into training with us, we're not going to start. Now, that's that's a luxury that they have mm-hmm. as a popular network to say, we'll work with you or not work with you. As a school system, that's a different challenge, which is why when we did interviews with um, the first podcast series that we did, we interviewed Ron Berger and Margarita Celestino from Yale Education. We interviewed, we interviewed Big Picture. We interviewed Urban Assembly, each of their leaders with a student. And we interviewed the new teacher center, which is talking about humanizing education for equity with a student. And for each of them, they they basically had a different definition of what it means to really engage youth in community. Hmm. But they and it they weren't they were different. Mm-hmm. And but they were all very intentional and they were all achieved at scale. It wasn't yep. just happenstance, this kid did it. Every kid was doing it. So in E in, in EL, community is crew. That's yes. a deep belief. Community is crew. Community is inside the school. And then with that crew, you go out into the community and you explore. That's yeah. one way to do community. In urban, in urban assembly, community is you are going to get real life experiences with a partner in your school. And every kid's going to have access to those experiences, whether it's health, it's law, it's social justice. You're going to have that. And we're going to go over in that other system mm-hmm. and train them to work with you and monitor that to make sure you're having good experiences. Each one is different, but they all did it. And and big picture is the one that's closest to the decentralized picture of 
you go find your learning experience and your advisor will come along behind you. That's one way to do it. But each of them has deeply achieved success. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand why they pick different routes and give people options. I think I think this mm -hmm. is the, the challenge yeah. is we need to give people the map and say, there's six ways to get, here's where you're trying to get. There's six ways to get here. How do you assess where you are so you can pick the easiest path? And I don't mm. think we've done that yet. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm wondering if you're more hopeful or more optimistic about the possibility of doing this work in the wake of the pandemic. I, I absolutely do. Um, the moment from 30 years ago is very clear, or 25 years ago, I guess, um, which is that from the, the heyday of where we had all of the prevention systems really thinking and leaning into youth development, we're, we're, we have that level of energy, I think, and but we have the schools involved this time. Mm -hmm. If we can just get the schools to recognize that they're the last people to come to the table, not the first, and listen to the other folks, we have a chance at that. And in some ways, the pandemic and the disruption allowed that to happen. Whether it whether it shuts down or not, but when when out of school time became all the time, the organizations that were relegated to the after school and summer hours stepped into that void and demonstrated that they could do that, that they could fill that space and they could operate differently with teachers and supports, et cetera. So all the lessons learned stick. They're not gonna stick to whole cloth, but I think there are enough organizations chipping away in enough different pieces of the picture that if we can recognize, if we can get a clear sense of what the picture is and see how many people are chipping away at pieces of it, we, we can make a difference this time. So I, I've never been more optimistic. Um, I'm also optimistic for, for the sake of schools that as we come out of the No Child Left Behind era, we have an opportunity without in any way letting go of quality we have an opportunity to let schools be recognized for what they are, which is truly multi-service agencies, which is why parents have to make a hard choice between, I had my kid in this great experience during the pandemic. I had him in a pod. They loved their teacher. They were much more engaged. They were learning stuff. Everything was great. But now school opens and I have to go back over here. Well, why do you have to go back over here? Most people, if we, if we pushed them, most people would answer the question, where did your most powerful learning experiences happen? Where do, you, where do you think your kids' most powerful learning experiences are happening? And there are plenty of parent surveys. Learning Heroes and other groups have surveyed parents over and over again. And you see they have a broad set of competencies. They can dif differentiate between what kids learn in school, what they learn at home, what they should learn in these other community education or organizations. They yeah. value them. But school has the resources. School has the accountability credential. School is mandatory. I get in trouble if I don't send my kid to school. So that's a box that mm -hmm. we can innovate around the edges and try to make school better. Yeah. But we just need, in some ways, we just need parents to say, school could be the home base. It, it, it could be the most basic place where I know my kid can go get fed, get known, and then they go out and do other stuff. Or they do it in the building. But we've got we've to dismantle or disaggregate this conversation and not pretend that the, the most exciting learning happens in the building because for the vast majority of kids, it's not. And that mm -hmm. means it isn't happening anywhere. And so we just can't assume that if we're going to require kids to take a chunk of their time and be in school, we need to put as much as we can in that building or in that time frame 
that gets them the learning that, that they should have. So we're having a lot of conversations right now about accountability systems and community-based accountability, right? People saying we need to be holding schools and systems accountable for very different things. Are there a couple of things you can think of that we would include in a sort of collective accountability model that would incentivize um, folks to begin working in the ways that you've been talking about? If, if I could wave a wand, going back to the youth development approach, as an approach that happens everywhere, or could happen everywhere, and back to Bronton Brenner, I would take the question out of school. And if we're going to talk about community accountability and community responsibility, I would say, do we have a mechanism for asking every kid and family where their kid is? Not just nine to three, but where their kid is and how they how much they like what they're doing there and what it would take for them to like it better, use it more, whatever. These don't have to be very complicated questions, mm -hmm. but to continue to focus the entire community on the school building, the school day, the school curriculum, isn't going to get us to this new vision. We have to give the community a chance to say, oh, these surveys all say we like all these competencies. Where does my kid learn those things? They don't learn those in school. So mm -hmm. I need to go over there and pay attention to that. Does every kid have that opportunity? So I'd love to have us really start to do a people, places, possibilities map hmm. that says every kid needs a minimum number of these things. Where do they, where do they find them right now? Hmm. Because it's where they find them is going to give us the confidence that you could decentralize or whatever you want, whatever word we're going to use, that we could somehow decouple all the things that make schools a monopoly, and we could we could get there because those things exist. They're just not funded and not set up steadily to be used um, in a reliable way. That's one. And number two, if we broadened out the circle of where kids are and where, what the people are and what possibilities they have, you would also get a much bigger and more accurate sense of the inequity. Mm -hmm. So yes. the, the, the thing that we're aiming for called school isn't good enough, isn't bold enough, isn't engaging enough for that to be the North Star. And our current data looking at equity also aren't big enough and bold enough. I want to talk about scale versus spread, because in this conversation, you've used the term scale in two different ways. The first way was with EL education, where you said it was scaled in the sense that every student was getting a similar kind of experience that we wanted them to have. But I would say EL education, as well as programs like Urban Assembly, Big Picture Learning, are very place-based. So I don't really think about them as scaling their programs in terms of just creating 100 new sites. They tend to spread the model um, into different locations, but inside the model, they scale in terms of making sure that all students have kind of access to the model. But does that feel right to you? And if so, I wanted to name it here because the distinction feels important, especially for funders. Um, funders often want to ask programs to scale up very quickly and say, go from 10 programs to 30 schools. And a lot of these programs have to say no, because they know it takes time and effort to see a school build its culture in such a way that allows kids to have similar kinds of experience um, or to have the experience with fidelity. Does that resonate for you? That makes absolute sense. Um, and 
we talk about, we, we tend to talk about uh, scale versus saturation. I use that word um, uh, because you can, you can, national programs can scale. Boys and Girls Clubs is everywhere, but there's no community in which Boys and Girls Club is serving all the kids or even serving all the kids who are served. So they have not saturated that entire community, even though they're a brand name across the country. Now, but what that what that means is, given the right incentives, because Boys and Girls Clubs is everywhere, Boys and Girls Clubs could be incentivized to be the hub that basically pulls together that non-integrated ecosystem of players into a network that operates like a, a loose system, mm-hmm. but can then operate in a big enough, consistent enough way that it's visible to the school system. Hmm. So the, 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 the scale from a system perspective is the one locally that I'm thinking about. The fact that, ironically, Margarita's school in Portland, Maine, shares a campus with another school that has a completely different philosophy. And even though her school every year graduates 98% of its students, I mean, their, their, their track record is incredible, They've got a school on the same campus that is doing things differently and not learning from them. So that's not scale. Right. How does that work? How does it how does it happen? That's the question for me is how does it happen that systems, and it's not just a school system, that systems are set up because they have to be functional and reliable at a high level, because their metrics are so high and aggregated and sort of averaged. That, that they can't figure out how to celebrate the exceptions that they have. Mm. Um, and it's, it's not their fault, but we've got to figure out some way that we break that, break through that. And again, my way of doing that is to say, other people have done it differently. We've got to go look at these non-integrated systems and mm. understand how they function. Karen, we're about to, to wrap our time up together. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to make sure we cover? Um, well, since your audience is funders, I would certainly say in the, in the spirit of, of, of talking about systems, moving systems to ecosystems, I, as I have conversations with funders, I often hear them say, well, we, we focus on one system, and now we understand that one system isn't enough, but we can't focus on all the systems, so we're stuck. We don't know what to do. And that's where the ecosystem thinking comes in. It's not that you need to go from just being education to being educational, juvenile justice, child welfare, and employment. You just need to understand that if you're going to focus on schools, you need to help them see themselves as a part of the ecosystem and not just see themselves as people who bring in community partners. This is a big difference between we know what we're doing and we'll go out and get people to help us versus we are a part of an ecosystem and we have to then understand that every kid that leaves this building continues to learn and have other experiences. And there are so many examples of where even breaking that, that sort of boundary of bringing information back in gives schools huge amounts of information that just helps them soften the walls Mm -hmm. between school and community. Thank you so much, Karen. Thanks for your time, your expertise, and your effort uh, on behalf of kids. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. It was great fun. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. 
You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.